0: Back to Institutionalized,
1: a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Fane Lehman, fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of City Journal. I'm Aaron Zabarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. Aaron, how are you doing today?
0: I'm good, Charles. Although I'm a little exhausted because I've been traveling a lot recently, especially up to Yale University. What 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 took you what took you back to New Haven? Well, so the first thing was for some alumni. You know, event that I just wanted to go to, but then the second thing, which is more interesting, was that this past week, Peter Thiel was giving a talk up there. Yeah, in the in the bowels of the cathedral, Peter Thiel was speaking, and I went up to to hear him talk. Was he good? He was good. The guy is just brimming with ideas, and so he his talk crammed at least basically like five different talks into one. Um, How any protesters? We. Did they did protest more presence? We did not no, no, no. They did we we did not have any protesters. I think they had they had very tight security. Uh, uh, that surprise me. Which, which which does not, yeah, not surprising after after recent events at, at sure. Yale and in particular Yale Law School.
1: Well, why don't our, our topic today is adjacent to i mean yale is implicated in our topic today yale was the uh, was the subject of part of justice investigation that got quietly nixed when we changed administrations but until under the trump doj I was subject of an investigation related to our uh, our topic today do you want should i should i introduce our topic you want me to juice yeah go for it charles yeah so today we are interested in talking about admissions in higher education and particularly the dispute around affirmative action in higher ed admissions although really the admissions process more generally Obviously, this is very much in the news. There are a couple of court cases pending before the Supreme Court, Student for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and Students for Fair Admissions versus UNC, which seek to challenge sort of informal systems or non-explicit systems of racial preference and other preferences in higher education admissions. As I alluded to previously, major universities like Yale and Harvard have been the subject of scrutiny on this topic, with critics arguing that they are Implementing legally intolerable systems of racial affirmative action. Proponents variously saying that they aren't, or that such systems are necessary to address previous harms. And so, you know, I think I I, I think that ideally in this conversation we will want to do both into those topics, but also really understand. Um, one of the cool things about our guest, and we'll introduce him in a second, we'll is that he has used some of the data that these these cases against Harvard and UNC have unearthed to paint a picture of how the admissions process really works in the 21st century, to get a picture of what really is going on behind the curtain in a way we haven't been able to beforehand. So that's, um, I'm interested not only in sort of this particular debate about, about about affirmative action, but also more generally how the institution admissions works and how it goes wrong Aaron, what is your what's your take on the topic this week?
0: Yeah, well, to me, what what's always fascinating here is is the extent to which admissions officers even realize what they're doing based on the data that's come out in students for fair admissions. It does seem pretty clear that they are rationalizing race discrimination. But then the question to me, and perhaps the data can indirectly shed some light on this, is. T- whether the rationalizations are cynical or sincere that is you know do they consciously use personality scores to penalize asians right do they know that that's what they're doing or is is affirmative action so deeply entrenched in the the these admissions bureaucracies that admissions officers don't even realize that they're discriminating and, and almost have kind of developed an implicit bias, you know, against certain groups that just happens to manifest in ways that sort of actualize the, the racial preferences in college admissions. I don't know what the answer is, but I think there is kind of an interesting question here about false consciousness and the degree to which we do or don't take admissions officers at their word about their own kind of
1: mental states and motives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think I'd, 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 add to that, 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 that is, you know, that's a constant sort of theme on the show is, is the extent to which institutions determine stuff versus individual actors determine stuff. I think I'd add to that. Part of my interest in, in our guest work is that he sort of showed the way in which, colleges work to allude to to obscure their underlying their their models for admissions and you know he he sort of shows there's clearly a formula going on there that isn't that is that is sort of obscured this non-transparency to admissions and i'm i'm interested in how that transparency opera non-transparency operates and how it will continue to operate going forward and we may talk about that a little bit if there's a change in the affirmative action regime how that transparency will change with all that as intro aaron do you want to do you want to introduce our guest
0: yeah, our guest today is Peter Arcidiakono, who is an economist and econometrician at Duke University. He is most famous for, in 2018, I think, testifying as an expert witness before the Massachusetts Federal District Court on behalf of students for fair admissions. So, you know, that Harvard case that we've been talking about and that you always hear about in the news, well, he is one of the experts who whose testimony may end up playing a pivotal role in determining the outcome. So Peter, welcome.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, so why don't we, I guess, start with just some basic facts. Talk us through just a little bit of your work, what you've uncovered about the scale of racial preferences at Harvard and also UNC. You have, I think, actually a paper that came out very recently at the time of this recording on, on both of those schools. So tell us, tell us about sort of the magnitude of the effects of race. so
2: yes, there's there's a bunch of different ways in which you can measure, measure that. I think one way of thinking about it is, you know, if they marked a different box, how would that change their admissions chances? And what we find, well, first of all, we need to distinguish how racial preferences operate because they're going to operate differently if you're connected than if you're not. You know, here at Duke, basketball is really big. Somebody like Zion Williamson. Racial preferences play no role for somebody like that. He's there because he's an absolutely amazing basketball player. But once he sort of take out that uh, segment at a place like Harvard, it's going to you know, quadruple admissions rates on average for African-Americans. And you'll see smaller preferences, so still large for Hispanic applicants. Now that has implications as he moved down to less selective schools. There's sort of a cascading effect. So a place like Harvard gets all the ones who would normally go to Harvard, but then, you know, takes an additional large set. And so that means that that place is a little bit further down. You know, they're going to have to go even further down to to get the diversity that they're looking for. And that's where sort of UNC comes in. What's interesting about UNC is it's effectively operates like two schools. UNC restricts the number of -of out-of-state enrollees that you can have. You're not supposed to have more than 18%. And that means that the admissions process is way more competitive if you're applying out-of-state than if you're applying in-state. So the, you know, the admissions rates over this period are like almost 17% out-of-state, but over 50 in-state. What that means is, is, that you really have to have fairly aggressive affirmative action for the out-of-state applicants. And so, you know, we're talking about increasing the average admission rate for Black applicants by more than tenfold, which is a very remarkable uh, remarkable number. For in-state applicants, the preferences aren't as large, and there are a couple of reasons for that, uh, which we can get into. But it's going to increase the admission rate by seventy percent,
1: so so, 70. yeah, so 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 fairly large effects. and the 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 constitute you're alluding a minute ago is is sort of mismatch theory, right? that one of the harms of affirmative action is that it ends up sorting people into well, a a is that it ends up sorting people into into higher schools or schools, the academics of which are more demanding than they would would otherwise be competent to participate in. Is that accurate?
2: Yeah, I think. A little bit of affirmative action cannot possibly lead to the mismatch. You know, you generally want to go to a school that's a little bit better than you. It's only when we get into, you know, one a standard deviation below your peers that's when things are really going to to start happening. And so, out of with the, that out of state admissions, those black admits out of state, they're still coming in with stronger credentials than their in-state counterparts, just because admissions are so much more competitive. And so it actually, it's interesting because UNC sort of splits the conservative argument in half on the one hand, from a fairness perspective, the out-of-state admissions are clearly much less fair in terms of the the racial advantages given than the in-state. But to the in state, you have to worry more about mismatch because they're coming in with significantly worse credentials. And UNC had to deal with that when they had their, what got characterized as an athletic scandal, but was really a scandal that faced sort of the African-American studies department. There were, there were a bunch of fake classes in that department.
1: What of the One um, of the things, I mean, I think that one of the things that You've highlighted in your research that I'm interested in sort of all of these, all of these sort of weird contortions that are that are used to sort of design a class of a particular racial composition. I want to ask you about your paper on recruit to reject at Harvard. Can you talk a little bit about what recruit to reject is and how you identified that and how it plays out?
2: Yeah. Well so most of the Harvard analysis covered the six-year period where we had detailed individual data about every applicant, so we knew what their rating was on the personal score uh, and all their, their different scores. But they also had this historical data as well that came out through the public record and there you could sort of see, you know, the number of applicants of different races and actually even broken out by whether or not they were athletes and legacies or not. And what was very interesting is you could sort of see that the share of applicants who are African-American, you know, it was rising over time, but only slightly. And it was you know around like 6%. And then in the short window, you, you see that the share of applicants who are African-American jumps up to, you know, over 10%. That's a pretty big shift in the total number of applicants. But then when you looked at the share of admits who were African-American, that didn't really change. So that's where the recruit to reject comes in is you ended up with an applicant pool that had a much bigger representation of African-Americans than in the past, but the share of the admitted class that was African-American didn't move. And and
1: what that means concretely is that the the, the the right, sorry, there's a much larger pool of of applicants. How how did they really the first question is how did you suddenly see this large jump? And then why do you speculate this uh, there was this policy change?
2: So and I should say that you know you could increase the pool and that could have still meant that some of those people who were now applying got in, but that doesn't really appear to be the case because it really seems like they're getting much lower s a t score applicants, applicants who have effectively no chance of getting getting in. So you know during the period, the later period where we have the individual level data, you can see that around I think it's thirty eight percent of black applicants were in the bottom ten percent of Harvard applicants in terms of academics. And basically nobody gets in. Unless you're like an athlete or a legacy from that, that bottom, that bottom.
0: I mean, it seems, it seems worth tying this back to, to mismatch here, just in that, you know, recruit to reject implies that the black kids who are admitted to Harvard are not dumb. Right. Because these, the the kids who really are, are in this recruit to reject pool, they're not getting in. That's right. Right. I I mean, I think this is something some conservatives don't don't always appreciate that the, the problem is not that, you know, Harvard takes like really dumb kids of a certain race. It's that they take quite smart kids of a certain race, but those kids aren't, the, the, the bar is so high that they're still lagging behind their peers.
2: Right. Right. That's right. And that, and that does matter for how they're going to perform, particularly within college. You could see that with the Georgetown case. Mm-hmm. When you think about law students at Georgetown's law school, everyone who gets in is very strong. But law school admissions, racial preferences are, are generally stronger than what's going on in the in the undergraduate school. Mm-hmm. And when, you know, there was that professor who lamented the fact that their black students were performing poorly relative to their peers. And that was it. And, you know, the video is a little cringy to watch, but nonetheless, to me, it's a worse crime to be hiding the fact that this is what's going on. So it got portrayed as well. She's a racist. We need to investigate all these things. But the reality is, is at all these law schools, this is what is happening. They black students are going to be disproportionately likely to finish at the bottom, you know, At the bottom Mm -hmm. of the class, that's because of affirmative action, and that's the trade-off. You know that you're going to come in behind your peers, you're going to do worse than your peers, but it might still be better for you. But we can't pretend that it's not going to affect your relative performance within the school. It has to. The the the
1: other thing, just to just harp on recruit to reject for a minute, because I thought this is uh, I mean this is the thing that come out of Harvard that the Harvard case that I found most interesting. My understanding of the paper is that. A lot of this policy change comes shortly after the Gretter and Gratz decisions, the Supreme Court decision to sort of revisit and uphold some racial preferences under the rubric of diversity, but say, we're a little bit concerned about this, we'll think about it later. This is in 2003 for our listeners' benefit. And part of what appears to happen in Harvard's published data is they can say, look, the black admit rate is as low, the share of black applicants are as low as the share of white applicants. Um, who are admitted. Um, And the way that they do this is that they uh, send flyers to black kids with 1100 SATs and say, you could totally go to Harvard. And of course, they can't go to Harvard. but They think they can go to Harvard. And I think there's a harm there as well, where you say, in order to in order to make your numbers look right, you convince some kid who could go to a different school that he should spend his time and his money applying to Harvard instead. Drive so that you can boost artificially the 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 denominator of your black admit rate, so that you don't get accused of building quotas into your system, even though you totally built quotas into your system. I mean, a is that is that an accurate summary, or to to the extent that you know, like to, to the extent that that isn't speculative, is that an accurate summary? And B, do you, what do you think of that sort of harm?
2: Oh, I I, th- I think it's real, and I think it disproportionately hits low income kids, you know, one of my kids got a flyer telling him to apply to Yale. And I knew he had no chance of getting into Yale. So we didn't waste our time, our time with that. And I think it, yeah, providing that false hope when there's no chance, I don't think is, is so good. To the point about why they're doing it. I think, you know, it it is speculative. What I can say is that in both cases, the defense sort of relied on this idea that, well, racial preferences clearly doesn't matter that much because a bunch of them are getting rejected. You know, that of course is a choice about who you get to apply. Obviously racial preferences is not benefiting the vast majority of Harvard applicants who are black because the admit rate is still less than 10%, you know, for those those applicants.
0: Right, so, so obviously we've talked about how, how racial preferences create these huge distortions. Could you also talk about how those distortions then kind of ramify through the system and create other distortions in particular for white students and for the way the schools do kind of create a separate category of white athletes legacies and Dean lists kids. Cause that's, that's kind of a, you know, people often will say, well, you know, uh, you're talking about affirmative action. Well, why don't you talk about legacies? But some, what you, some of your research shows, right. Is that there's actually a connection between these two things.
2: Well, we, we do find very large preferences on, you know, the legacy and athlete front for sure. And, and those actually were the first couple of papers we wrote out of the case on mm. those. And I think it, it would say athlete one, that was very striking to me. I mean, I, the legacies are striking too, but you know, you sort of know that legacy preferences are going to be there. What I didn't know was how big the athletic preferences were and who they favored. So what, what makes Harvard pretty unique is they actually offer more varsity sports than any school in the country. You wouldn't think that given the size of their, mm-hmm. their school. But those sports they offer, you know, the first sports that a school is going to have are things like basketball, football, things that get played at public schools. The last sport that gets offered is a sport like sailing. And sailing is going to favor kids from more privileged backgrounds. So there may be a public school that offers a sailing team. I'm not aware of, <laughs> aware of one. And those, so... What was sort of stunning is that, you know, over 16% of white admits were recruited athletes. That number is less than nine for African-Americans and in the fours for Hispanics and uh, Asian-Americans. And indeed, the share of white admits who are recruited athletes is more than if you combine the shares of legacies, donors, athletes and children of faculty and staff for any of the other three groups so definitely wow those preferences really favor white kids but not white kids in general white kids from particular environments
1: right i i I think the 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 top line statistic is something like 43 percent of white admits to harvard are athletes legacies dean list or children of faculty so you know one one gets the sense that a harvard harvard sort of manages its class to admit preferred shares of black and Hispanic applicants, and then B, among the remaining white pool, a large proportion are from these like preferred groups that are not necessarily merit based as it were.
2: That's right. And I think that these kinds of preferences survive in part because of this interplay with affirmative action. So I think, you know, if something like affirmative, if affirmative action falls, legacy preferences for sure, I think will fall just because it would be too distasteful to say, okay, we're going to keep the privileges for the rich white kids, but we're not going to write references for these other, these other groups.
0: Wouldn't it also just free up some space for more? Because there's, there's currently a number of slots that go to kids who, who wouldn't probably get in, but for affirmative action, those kids won't get in once affirmative action is gone. So then you'll have sort of, you will need to fill the slots with other kids. And instead of filling them maybe with, you know, sailors, right? Like white, you know, preppy kids who, who did sailing at their rich private school, you might fill them with like, you know, middle or even working class white kids who do really well on their SAT in theory, right?
2: It, it's possible. What's interesting is, again, looking at this historical data, that the share of students who are who are legacy and athlete mm. in terms of the admitted class is basically flat so that seems like you always have the same right over time despite the fact that their share of applicants is, is plummeting you know so admissions has gotten way more competitive they get lots of great applicants you do have the recruiter reject so some of them are not strong but that's not the general case and you can see this that, yeah, so to the extent that they end up targeting a particular share of their class to be legacy and athlete, getting rid of affirmative action wouldn't necessarily change that, but sure. there would be such backlash against legacy right. preferences afterward. The danger, I think, is that they might get rid of the legacy preferences from a public relations perspective and then expand the sailing team <laughs> because the athletes might come under less scrutiny because... They could see it as somewhat meritorious that they had to do particularly well sure, on, sure. on sports.
1: So I wanna I wanna actually come back to that sort of like conceptual manipulation, but I I I I sort of want to zoom in on the I mean the 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 sort of elephant in the room, the who are the 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 populations who are sort of excluded by virtue of these preferences, mostly not white kids. So um in one of your papers, this is licensed athlete preferences at Harvard, our Kinsler and Ransom. You have an estimate. This table eleven for our listeners. If you if you want to go read the Edinburgh paper, you have an estimate of basically shares of the population who are what 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 the shares of the population. What it looks like the what the model says. Or sorry, what, what the current composition of the population is in Harvard admits versus what it would look like if there were no athletes legacies or racial preferences. And if they're in under the current status quo, it's like forty eight percent white, thirteen percent black, thirteen percent Hispanic, twenty three percent Asian, twenty four percent Asian. And if you got rid of athletes, legacies, and racial preferences, it would be like 50% white, not a big change, 4% black, 8% Hispanic, and 36% Asian. So it's like 12 percentage points worth of Asians, 13 percentage points worth of Asians who are missing entirely from the Harvard population. And the SFFA argument is in some sense that people who are being victimized by all of these systems of preferences are overwhelmingly high-achieving Asian students who are not necessarily – wealthy, not necessarily legacies, but are by all objective educational standards, great fits for places like Harvard. So, so how do you see Asian admits fitting into this sort of the, the system as it currently exists?
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it's, I didn't really know much about how well Asian Americans were doing in terms of test scores and grades and such prior to college, you know, and This case sort of revealed all that to me and it was absolutely stunning. Just how, how well as a group that they're doing. So you you talked about those numbers. If you did it based on academics alone, it would be over 50% Asian American. That, that'd be what the class would look like.
1: That's what classes, places like Caltech look like, which where, um, where affirmative action is formally banned by the state constitution.
2: Well, so.
1: But the UC I don't, system. I don't
2: only, think, I don't think Caltech. Caltech is private in because they're private. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And and the, the I mean,
1: the UC system ways
2: to get around the UC system figures out ways to sort of get around that to a degree. But yeah, you're right. Caltech does not does not have those preferences. But it is. I mean, it's just striking. You know, it's also the case that I think Asian Americans in the US have slightly higher incomes than whites, if you looked at the population. But when you think about people who are applying to Harvard, that's actually not true. And that the reason for that is that low-income Asian American families, they're doing something different in their households so that they're in a position to apply to Harvard in a way that, that other families are not. Uh, I mean, you can really see that with everything that's going on with this in New York City. You know, that's a public exam high school. My rough understanding is that New York City is a quarter Asian American, quarter Hispanic, quarter black, quarter white. And yet, and Asian Americans are actually the poorest group because I they think they're mostly recent immigrants yet, you know, something like 70% of Syvescent enrollees are Asian American. They're just doing incredibly, incredibly well. I think we want to figure out what they're doing. <laughs> I li- would like to know that for my own kids.
0: This 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 is probably familiar to many of our listeners, but just in case it's not, could you briefly talk about how the personality ratings are used in order to inaugurate these racial preferences and put them into practice without, without it seeming like they're actually doing that?
2: Sure. So it's actually a personal rating. They don't call it the person. It's probably trying to capture something along those lines and both Harvard and UNC have a personal rating. I think at UNC, it's a personal quality rating. At Harvard, it's a personal rating. And what's remarkable is you you could think there might be this trade-off, that the people who do well on academics, they're not gonna do so well on other things. But that's generally not the case. If you have higher academic performance, you tend to get better teacher letters of recommendation, you're engaged more in extracurricular activities. And it's correlated with doing other things that might affect that personal rating, overcoming disadvantage, you know those kinds Do of it. kinds of things. Because you're you're stri- you're a striver. But at Harvard, Asian Americans score, you know, just as well or better than whites on all the ratings except for two. One is the athletic rating. Who does well on the athletic rating? It's people who participate in sports that Harvard offers. So the fact that Harvard even has an athletic rating, I think is crazy. Cause this is an mm. athletic rating for non-recruited athletes, people who do the best at that are white legacies, but then the other rating that Asian Americans do poorly on relative to whites is the personal rating. And they're, you know, they get the lowest among the four, four groups. You wouldn't expect that to be the case based on the other observables that we have, so we can sort of see, well. Is there anything in the data that would hint that maybe there's there's some other explanation for this? And there's really not. We can control for hundreds of variables and you always see this penalty against Asian Americans in the personal rating. But What's interesting is that in UNC's personal rating, you don't see that. Asian-Americans do just as well as whites at UNC's personal rating. So what's different about those two? Well, Harvard gets a lot more Asian-American applicants than UNC does. UNC, North Carolina doesn't have a large Asian-American population. They don't have to worry about being, quote, overrun. So they don't look for the ways to penalize them in the same way. And that really points to it not being... Something where they're just efficient on these personal quality, but the fact that it's a means of putting in preferences. And and you can see that showing up in other ways as well. So, you know, on the personal rating, you you see that African-Americans get what appears to be a pretty big bump. If you're a disadvantaged applicant, you also get a bump. But if you're black Mm -hmm. and disadvantaged, you're not going to get that full disadvantaged bump. So right. That and that's how racial preferences operate at Harvard as well. You get a big bump for being black, smaller bump for being disadvantaged, but if you're black and disadvantaged, you're not going to get the disadvantaged uh, uh, bump.
0: Yeah, I mean I mean just to sort of put kind of a finer point on what you said, you know, you know if, if you go through all these possible explanations for for you know the the lower personal ratings and and you know and, and there is none sort of other than other than that they're using it to discriminate. I mean, the only other possibility for right is one that I think these schools would be loath to endorse in any other context, namely that there is a racial group that is just systematically less interesting or personally like like fun to be around than all the others. And I mean Imagine if Harvard like tried to make that argument about any other, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be having it. I mean, it does, it does seem like this is the logical conclusion here that either, either Asians are just less interesting people or Harvard is racially discriminating.
2: Like that would certainly (laughs) the frame by which, uh, SFMA presented it. Like, you know, it seems clear that that would be the trade-off. Harvard threaded the needle on that in a pretty interesting way. One, you know, they basically did say Asian Americans just aren't as multidimensional as white applicants. That was based on four ratings, the academic, extracurricular, personal, and athletic rating. (laughs) And the first two of those, academics, extracurricular, Asian Americans do much better. So that multidimensional argument was sort of taking that that personal rating deficiency of Asian Americans at face value. At the same time, you know, basically every Harvard admissions officer would say, no, there's nothing, you know, personally deficient about Asian American applicants. So what they did is they sort of said, well, maybe the 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 teachers who are writing the recommendation letters are throwing throwing these kids under the bus without providing any evidence. I mean, I, to me, I think that's just crazy, right? I can't imagine to me, this would be a horrible precedent to set. Imagine Trump towers say, you know, being sued uh, by African Americans for discriminatory hiring practices. And the response be, look, it's not that we're discriminating against uh, blacks. It's just, they scored worse than our likability rating, you know? That would be completely unacceptable. The fact that this is so accepted, you know, it's shocking. Right. Yeah. Well, and also
0: if, if the reason if the if if Harvard's argument is, well, they're scoring worse because their teachers are giving them worse recommendations, but maybe that's their teacher's fault, isn't isn't that kind of like saying, Well, we think their teachers are racist and racistly like penalizing them. But we got to take it at face value. I mean, I mean, would Harvard make that argument about, again, about any other group that, oh, well, yes, the only reason this data looks the way it does is because of systemic racism. But, like, we got to take it at face value. I mean, it just seems like an absurd argument on its face.
1: Let me – let me sort of sort of broaden this out because I think I mean I think that sort of part of what we're poking at in this conversation is is these absurdities of you know uh, things things that are clearly just you know variables that are clearly just proxies for things Harvard wants to Harvard UNC want to measure for this absurd recruit to reject approach. Claiming that right, the Harvard's Harvard's theory about why Asians get worse, for lack of a term like ability scores. Um, you and and your colleagues, you Peter and your colleagues, Josh Kinsler and Tyler Ransom, wrote a wrote a piece in the University of Chicago Law Review this one a, two years ago. This wanted to sort of draw a close quote from you guys. Write by ruling that using race in a point system is not allowed, but that using race holistically is. The court has given universities an incentive to hide what they are doing. As we'll show, a holistic admission system can be expressed as an implicit formula where one of the components is not observed. A natural consequence of this is that a points-based system can appear holistic by simply not reporting one of the components and not making the formula public. And so how I understand it, for a reader's benefit, what you're saying is essentially the courts have told places like Harvard you're not allowed to use uh, race as a, as, as, a, as, a, as a component of your admission decision-making, and the response is to build these obscure non-transparent systems where they do, but they do it indirectly and this sort of hand wave a lot. Like why has this happened? Um how did we how did we get to the point where we had this kind of weird non-transparent system? Why does it persist?
2: Well I think I think it persists because admissions processes are sort of out of step with what people would want. You know, Harvard would like to have a bunch of legacy admits. For various reasons, but it's a very bad look to the extent that people would actually know that that was happening. That that weakens Harvard's reputation. So, and you can see that it's also a conflict be- between what universities want and what the law prescribes. And the classic case of this is what's going on with the UC system. You know, you had Prop 16, which tried to reinstitute racial preferences in the University of California system. It failed badly. People said, no, we don't want that. What immediately after that, the UC system says, we're, we're not going to use test scores in our admissions process anymore because they're distortionary in some, in some way. So, you know, they're, they're trying to make it so that they can put the preferences that they want to have in contrast to what. You know, society as a whole might want because they believe that they they know better.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that you run into here one one of the one of the constants in polling over the past forty years is that Americans hate racial quotas. They they like like if you ask Americans, do you want diversity? They say yes. Do you want like you know a wider variety of races represented? Yes. Do you think that everyone should be called to yes? Should we have quotas? Three in four Americans hate the concept in all applications. But it does seem to be like part of this, as you alluded to, is whether it be legacies or athletes, there are groups that universities would like to prefer, but it's just sort of overwhelmingly unpopular as they create this elided exchange process where they're like, we're doing it, but we're not actually doing it. Or we aren't actually doing it, but actually we're doing it. You know, I I, I wonder if so, so. I want to ask you to speculate on the case, but I will say I've sort of said I think it's likely that, that students for admissions is going to win and that, and that the court is going to substantively overturn its prior affirmative action jurisprudence and say, no, really, this is intolerable under, under equality of the law. Let's imagine that that happens as a hypothetical. How do you see, and you sort of alluded to this, this California system, how do you see the system evolving? How do, you, like, how, how do you think that colleges will react to a hypothetical world in which racial preferences are, if, if, if you're a university that accepts federal funding, you can't use racial preferences in admissions?
2: Yeah, I think there's, it's going to be a combination of two things. One, which I'm very supportive of, and one that I think is going to take us down a bad path. The bad path is what the UC system is currently doing by getting rid of the test scores. So what you do is you just make it so that we're going to be able to put it in without you knowing it. And then the screening, I think, just gets really bad. And I think there's another issue with that, too, is that even if you weren't going to use the test scores in admissions, you should collect the information. MIT recently said they're putting the test scores back in to their admissions uh, because it's informative about how they're going to do there. You know, universities have this wealth of data. They should be using it to identify students who might struggle and then give them the resources to succeed. They don't, they don't do that. Uh, Or at least they don't do it enough. So one response is to make the process less transparent. Don't use the stuff, the screening devices that, lead to the racial outcomes that you don't want, figure out a different way of doing it. The other thing is to actually invest in the pipeline. And I think you can see that with when California got rid of racial preferences initially, you know, that led to a steep drop in minority enrollment, but there was a recovery. I think part of that recovery was they figured out ways to get the racial preferences back in. But I think part of it was also investing in the pipeline. That's, that's where the real issues are that we need to fix. And, it, and until we do that, we're going to keep the, the racial inequities, things such as charter schools or vouchers. Those are the kinds of things that I think have shown great success in terms of eliminating some of these racial achievement gaps. I mean, it was sort of heartbreaking in response to Floyd that, you know, one of the charter school systems said, we're going to get rid of our mo- motto of be nice and work hard Uh, because it's not acknowledging KIPP. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, is KIPP was doing wonderful things. I hope that they still are. But that system was incredibly helpful for closing achievement gaps. And, of course, there are two ways to close achievement gaps, right? You can lower the performance of whites and Asian-Americans, or you can raise the performance of African-Americans, What Kip was doing was the latter.
0: You mentioned vouchers. You have another kind of market oriented solution to to some of these problems. You, You outlined in one of your papers, which is effectively to use all the data these schools collect to inform applicants about their probability of academic success, conditional on major and background. Could you kind of walk through that proposal a little bit?
2: Yeah, to me, this is just a matter of being honest with your students. I think you could have done this with Georgetown Law School. You you do it with all schools, and you don't even need race to be a part of it. People come in, they have a set of test scores and grades. You say, here's a matrix with your test scores and grades, and here's your probability of being able to, of, of graduating in these majors. You say you want to be going to engineering, engineers who come in. With these test scores and these grades, your probability of, of finishing in that major here is X percent. Then you can make a decision about whether you still want to go there. And that's a trade off, right? It may be the case that you would rather, you want to do engineering, but you say, I'd rather get the degree at Duke in some other field than go to a school uh, a little bit further down and not do. And, and succeed in engineering, but at least then you've got the information to make an informed informed decision. I think the problem is, is that you end up with people who come in, they're way behind, they don't know that they're way behind, and so now they've got a choice once they get there. Believe that I'm way behind, or I'm in this racist system. And I think that that is a, a, a cost of, having very strong racial preferences is I think it can actually reinforce uh, those beliefs.
0: Well, I mean, I mean, if just to sort of I I like this proposal, but to play devil's advocate, you know, if you you give kids this information. Stereotype threat, which doesn't exist. Well, well, no, no, yeah. But but, but like, couldn't someone say, well, oh, you know, all the black kids, maybe they're not told they're not going to do well because they're black. They're told they're not going to do well because they don't have as high SATs. But then someone might say, well, why don't they have as high SATs? Oh, it's because the SAT is racist. And, you know, if they're not doing as well, that is itself a reflection of racism. I mean, it seems like your proposal kind of rests on a set of assumptions that there's kind of an entire entrenched memetic and discursive apparatus dedicated to discrediting, right?
2: So at some point, I really want to have a debate on that exact issue, because to me, if you're going to say, look, the SATs have all this racial bias, what you're really saying is the school system, the K through 12 school system isn't as bad as as uh, it really is in terms of producing disparate yeah. outcomes. There's nothing to see here. They're doing just as well. Well, that's just, you know, malarkey, right? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It's got to be the case that, you know, the test scores may reflect some association with income and such, but the access to resources matters. It, and you know, the reality is, is what they screen on outside of tests actually favors the rich even more, such as the athletic rating and such. But if it was the case that these test scores were really discriminatory, then what you would see is that black students would overperform when they get to college. You know, they'd have higher grades relative than, than what their test scores would predict. They'd be more likely to persist in the science majors than what their test scores would predict. That's not the case. So that tells you now. With the stereotype threat, people will say, "Well, then it just goes on into college, right?" right. right. But it, once you're at that point, I don't know why we even use data because you can't. Your conclusion is based on your assumption as opposed to right. Right. seeing what it reveal
1: Yeah, I think I think we want to sort of move to closing thoughts in a minute. But I guess you know, I I, I want to ask in relation to that. It seems to me like. The the model you described, the solution you described makes sense to me or is intuitive to me. If we sort of buy, I mean, right. I, I could sort of write the counter arguments as Aaron has done in my head, but I'm like, I don't find this counter argument I think more information is generally preferable, particularly for adults, which is what college students are. But I guess do you see reason for optimism about, you know, the the, the system the system getting less approcatory, the system getting less prone to sort of hiding what it wants to do, or are you a pessimist going forward? Do you, do you think that admissions will get better or worse? And if so, why? Not nah,
2: why not? Well, I, I think it's really going to depend on the place. I think you're seeing a split on schools along a lot of dimensions and some schools are going to do more this model of hiding what they're doing, maybe putting less weight on, on the tests and so on and other schools.
1: So I think just we want to move into sort of concluding thoughts in a second. But to sort of ask a final question, Peter, uh, I guess I want to ask about your, your, your level of optimism or pessimism. You know, you've described a, a system, an approach that makes sense to me, that works. I can sort of make the arguments against it in my head, as Aaron has, but I find them unpersuasive. But I guess, are, you, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the direction of admissions? Do you think we will get move towards a more transparent system or we will move towards a less transparent system or something else altogether?
2: Well, my suspicion is that there's going to be a split and some are going to uh, become less transparent and others you know, might, might become much more transparent. It, I think that universities themselves are diverging a bit in terms of how they're treating truth versus you know what, what the purpose of a university is. Jonathan Haidt has talked a lot about that. And I think that that diversion is probably likely to continue and have implications for admissions as well. Gotcha.
1: No, that 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 makes sense. I mean, Aaron, Aaron, what are your what's your your takeaway from the conversation? Yeah, yeah, it's funny.
0: I a couple of years ago wrote an essay in the wake of the Yale DOJ suit that then was dropped, effectively saying, look, affirmative action is noxious and bad for all sorts of reasons. But on the other hand, what happens in the absence of racial preferences, you know, if you get an elite that really just looks nothing like the country that it's it's notionally leading. You know, I do think there could be some pretty bad implications if if Harvard suddenly becomes, you know, like over 60% Asian. And then, you know, if, if, if it's all Asian and white and there's only like, you know, 10 black and Hispanic kids, right? I, I am not sure that would be terrific. And, and I still have worries about that. But I have to say conversations like this really do make me wonder if that is nonetheless the lesser of two evils because these preferences are just so toxic and the contortions on which they rest are so ridiculous. It just seems to me the status quo has its own existential legitimacy problems and furthermore the, the, the fact that they've gone through all these contortions already suggests to me that universities will continue, you know, as Peter just kind of said, to to find ways of smuggling in some preferences. So, so I'm left thinking if maybe the best outcome is the Supreme Court totally outlaws affirmative action, schools try to kind of find some ways to maybe do it anyway. They're constrained, so the magnitude of the preferences decreases, even if the preferences themselves don't disappear. And then you end up with a scenario in which maybe we do move closer to the optimal, you know, kind of constellation of racial preferences, which is probably not zero racial preferences, but also very different from what we we have now. Because I think what we have now just... It's really hard to look at it, honestly, and think this is remotely fair or or
1: just. Yeah, I mean, you know. Well,
2: you know there's one real catch I forgot to mention, which is that the pressure on racial preferences is going to go up with the COVID cohorts. I think that, yes. that COVID just crippled a lot of the poorer schools, and that's going to disproportionately hit you know underrepresented minority households that that's going to be the real COVID story i think in a few years down the down the line is that you're going to see much a a widening of those achievement gaps that we're just not going to know what to what to do with
1: yeah i mean you know my 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 thought sort of sort of in general and i this this is related is you know I think I think sort of the best outcome that you can hope for is 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 sort of a, a flowering of, of diverse approaches to this problem right now there's a pretty uniform the, the, the there's, there's a great deal of social uniformity on or um uh, institutional homogeneity on sort of the question of how you handle admissions I, I my, my impression is that Harvard and UNC are not alone in this approach and and you know we we talk about this podcast as a frequency, the power of law to shape cultural institutions if if Tomorrow, if, if you're in June, the Supreme Court says, I mean, we're going to dump the diversity framework. We're going to we're gonna, we're gonna dump the plus factor framework. We're going to say, no, you can't practice affirmative action in any way, shape, or form. Of course, colleges will still practice affirmative action. Uh, but maybe some will and some won't. Maybe some will take sort of the, the legal imprimatur as, as cover to say, no, really, we're not going to practice affirmative action. And then you can look at what the effects are in the long run. In other words, I guess you know the, the my greatest here is is the sort of possibility of competition that that a ruling could could make available even even if I don't expect that you know it will it will dramatically alter the composition of many schools' population. Why don't we Why don't we do some very brief recommendations, Aaron? If you want to go first, I'll offer one, and then Peter, if you have if you have a recommendation for our listeners, you can offer one as well. Aaron, Aaron, what's your recommendation to listeners this week?
0: Yeah, so so uh, a little while ago we had Gail Harriet on our podcast to talk about the ty- the 1991 Civil Rights Act and the roots of wokeness. I, I want to recommend the paper that we didn't talk about on my podcast that she's written, which is also really good. And that's I think it's something called Title VII disparate impact liability makes almost everything presumptively illegal. And I I, I recommend the paper because she's talking about affirmative action not just in 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 college admissions but in government contracting and other institutions and she points out basically that you know affirmative action regimes like the ones we've been talking about have disparate impacts right they have disparate impacts on asians not having affirmative action also has disparate impact and her argument is basically because disparate impact is inevitable is the inevitable consequence of almost any policy if disparate impact is presumptively illegal, as it technically is due to Supreme Court precedents, we're effectively living in a kind of permanent legal state of exception in which everything we do is illegal. And the only reason we can do anything is because bureaucrats at the EEOC selectively choose uh, when to apply disparate impact law and when not to. It's a very interesting paper, really makes you question the degree to which We even have rule of law in the United States um, post Griggs and post some other civil rights cases. So for people interested in racial preferences, disparate impact, this is a very good paper that will really challenge a lot of your assumptions about the United States and kind of the the political theoretic implications of what we've been talking about for like, you know, system-wide legitimacy. So that's what I would recommend.
1: My recommendation is clearly a different direction. I'm doing I'm doing movies just to uh, upset the trend. My recommendation My recommendation is um, I don't I don't even try to pronounce French names. I think her uh, is Julie Delpy. Um, but I butcher French all the time. She's a French director. Her first uh, major film, Raw, which is about teenage girls being cannibals. It's a horror thriller, but it's also the best representation of college that I personally have ever seen. Because they were at like a French vet school, it's it's a movie you gotta see to believe. But it is about it is, I think, about the college experience and about social pressure in college and how we relate to that and the experience of that. Obviously, not about affirmative action because it's in France. But other than that, Peter, do you have recommendations for our listeners from your own work, from others' work, movies you like, etc.?
2: Well, I'll give two. One on the pure academic article side by my one of my former students. Because to me, he's addressing. Well, the the key issue, which is the achievement gap prior to college that needs to be dealt with. And what his paper does is by John Singleton, it looks at charter schools and says, look, poor kids are actually cost more to educate. If you're worried about cream skimming of charter schools, you can provide the subsidies for those students at a higher rate rather than the standard per pupil, the same uh, per pupil amount. And shows that that can have a big implications for where charter schools locate. And I think that, that that to me is a key to closing this achievement gap. And then the other is an article by Jonathan Haidt that came out in The Atlantic, which I think is, just hits the current state of the world and our ability to even talk about things like affirmative action. I'm going to butcher the title. That's something about how this, this uh, time period is in the last 10 years has been uniquely stupid. And speaks about the sources of polarization.
1: What, exactly. what, why the past ten years of American life have been uniquely stupid? Yes, a great,
2: article, and it seems to resonate with people across the board. You know, so I, I think I, definitely worth a look.
1: Great, great. Thank you, Peter, so much for joining us. This was a great conversation thank you as always to our producers at nebulous listeners if you have questions comments concerns college applications etc that you would like to direct to us you can find us on twitter i'm at charles f lehman Aaron is at Aaron seberry but i think that's about all the time that we have so until next time i'm charles fane lehman i'm aaron seberry and you've been listening to institutionalized we hope you'll join us again